0: Well, Philip, I'm going to say hello, Mr. Holoka, so yes. I say, right, Philip Holoka, how are you doing, sir?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Spencer. Well, thanks
0: for, uh, thanks for coming down, man. I know you're, you're down here for other reasons. I appreciate you spending extra time with me and having some lunch, too. What Did you I, enjoy our lunch that I, we just had?
1: It was delightful, yes. Yeah, the yeah. company was great. The
0: food was wonderful, yes. Yeah, man. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, you don't have to say which one was better, the food or the company. But uh, thanks for coming down, man. You're down from Pittsburgh, right? Yes. Pittsburgh, we were just talking about P- Pittsburgh Penguins, Pit- yes. Pittsburgh Steelers, Um, so Pittsburgh to Dallas, I mean, like when you come, had you come down to Texas office or no?
1: Um, yeah, we, we've got some clients in, in Texas. Um, uh, I, I enjoy coming South, especially for the winter time.
0: Yeah. No, you're, you're like a bird flying South Uh, for the winter. Like you can't be, I've got this heavy coat on today, but it's going to be like 77 degrees. And that's the beauty of Texas is you literally never know. Like two years ago, freezing cold on Halloween. Last night, I go with my daughter to do trick-or-treating, and I'm in a sweating. t-shirt. Like, yes. yeah, it's like, what you never know what you're going to get, man. Yep. But presuming it's going to be warmer than, than uh, Pittsburgh most of the that, time. That's a very good assumption. Yeah. yeah. It's,
2: it's safe. Yes. It's a
0: safe assumption. So yes. so you're down here. Obviously, you're down here for another event. But today, we're going to dig into really deep into Captives. And I kind of explained to you my vision that we'll do uh, kind of a two-part series on Captives mm-hmm. because I feel like... One, the space is very complex, but two, I think just based on kind of feedback I've been getting, the questions I've been getting from people in the market, I feel like there's a demand and appetite to understand captives pretty deeply. So, yes, we're, we're going to get granular today. Aren't we're we? going to get very granular. We're going to start basic so that we don't lose yep. too many people, but we'll get pretty granular. But obviously, before we go too deep into that, I'd like to take a chance for the audience to get to know you. Um, history, your background, we'll talk about you being an EMT, family, yes. whatever you want to talk about is on the table. The floor is yours. Well, I, I appreciate that, Spencer. So I'm married, going on 24 years.
1: Congrats! Um, I've got a wife that uh, I'll say candidly, I married up on. That's always important. Um, But uh, she's also in the stop loss business. Okay. She is a uh, a pharmacist. She's a doctor of pharmacy. And uh, so we we, we have some pretty interesting conversations at our dinner table. Sometimes it pushes our kids away.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm sure the kids aren't. That's probably like going way over their heads, right? Yeah.
1: So, but yeah, we we've got some good conversations. so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have those conversations. I, I have three wonderful kids. My oldest, who's 22, is following mama's footsteps. Nice. She's in her fifth year of pharmacy school, so that's exciting. Um, and then I have two high schoolers, uh, 15 and 17. So they, they keep me busy, and we're very blessed that... Uh,
0: well, I think we talked about this over lunch. Don't know if any of them are going to fall in the captive footsteps, right? <laughs> like, Or they don't know yet that they they'd have interest in the captive space.
2: That,
1: that's right. We, yeah, I think my daughter is – my
0: youngest daughter is
1: very much attuned, I think, when what she wants to be when she grows up.
2: Okay. So my your son's,
0: son's maybe the only possibility. Then, my, right? my son is taken after my track of we're going to wait and see what, what pans <laughs> we'll, out. We'll figure it out. Right? Yes. So, that, I mean, that's what we talked about, wait and see. But I'm not, obviously, I think the relevant kind of history you have in your career pre-captive space yes. was – as an EMT. So tell me, how, how many years were you an EMT? Oh, boy. Uh, I, I was 25 years as a paramedic. 25.
2: Okay. And,
1: and I'll tell you, Spencer, if, if there was a direct route to where I am today, and then there was a ziggy-zaggy route <laughs> that is all over the place, yeah. that was the route that I took. So.
0: Well, so how did you get interested in being a paramedic in the first place?
1: Oh, boy. So uh, at a very early age, almost like my youngest, I wanted to be a physician.
0: You did.
2: Okay. Um,
1: I found it fascinating to practice medicine and at a very high level, I enjoyed helping people. Right. So, um, I, I, I went into college to, to go to medical school. Um, but I took a year off. I, I attended paramedic training and, uh, that got me an entry level position on the ambulance to practice medicine. And, um, to say, I have stories to write a book is an understatement. I believe it. So, um, but when I was – when I should have been focusing on biology and chemistry and calculus, I was running paramedics on the streets of Pittsburgh. Okay. Um, and I I lost that focus. I did graduate, by the way. Um,
0: <laughs> but I, I should have been focusing on um, schoolwork. Well, so what was the allure then? Is it the fact that you could hit the ground running working or was it the excitement? I mean, what, what – tell me about the uh, – what draws you to be a paramedic? All of the above. It, okay. It, to
1: say it was exciting is an understatement. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, you know – Medicine is fascinating because there's very seldom is the right answer right in front of you, mm-hmm. right? So you, you have to be part detective when you're a paramedic because you have to question a patient. What's, what's your ailments? What's going on? What's your signs? What's your symptoms? Those, those sort of things. So I, that was the exciting part of it. And I wanted to be a physician. And I, and, and I was living what I thought was my dream at the time. And one of the distractions was I, I was making a wage of, of, an, of an adult. Mm-hmm. I was 19, you know, and so uh, I was distracted. But it becoming a paramedic was probably one of the better things in my life because it was just the excitement got me.
0: Well, and you spent 25 years, right? I mean, that's a lot of excitement. So I yes. don't have to put you on the spot necessarily, but if there's any story, like a favorite story uh, favorite uh, thing? I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe not. I know there's obviously some traumatic things mm-hmm. that you experience. I probably see people, obviously, at the worst moments of their lives. But, I mean, anything that jumps out to you that might be an interesting one you can share? Well, I mean, where do I start? Yeah. You know, working EMS
1: has, has challenges just like every other career. But it's like working in a coal mine. You, you take those things home with you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. The, the waxing and weaning of emergency medicine, um, you have to have a good family circle, support group because you, you take home some of the tragedies that happened during that yeah. day. But by and large, it was all good, right? So I, you know, some of the funny stories, um, and it may look dark whenever I, <laughs> I talk about this, but it has a good ending. Okay. Um, uh, I, I remember going to the hospital one early morning for, a, you know we'll call her Margaret, sick, not feeling well. So on the way to the hospital, she has you know what looks to be almost like a seizure. Okay. Okay. And I, I say, Margaret, Margaret, are you okay? And she's not responding. And I look up at the heart monitor and her heart's not doing what it should be doing. Okay. In, in fact, it's, it's, what called, it's what's called ventricular fibrillation. So effectively, it's a non-sustaining heart rhythm. And it's, it's corrected pretty easily. You, you have to get up the paddles, right? You got a shocker, mm-hmm. and, and And that's what I did. However, it, when this happens, Picture me now, I'm straddling the stretcher. My legs are on both sides of the stretcher, which yeah. are in the middle of the ambulance. Okay. And I holler up to my partner who's driving the, the ambulance. I say, Jim, she's in cardiac arrest. So just picture me for a second. I'm holding the paddles here. I'm getting ready to, to charge her, to, to, to cardiovert, defibrillator. What does he, do? He, he steps on the gas. <laughs> so if you can just picture me, I'm, I'm holding this, these You're paddles. You're not holding on to anything. Right? Not holding yeah. on to anything yeah. else. Yeah. And I fly back to the end of the, the awesome. ambulance. So I reacquaint myself and I say, Jim, you gotta you gotta call a hospital because I said we were coming in with Margaret who's just sick and now she's she's not breathing. (laughs) And hospitals tend not to like those patients who come in at a surprise. Surprise,
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So so Jim gets on the radio and says to you know Mercy Hospital, hey, we're coming in with a full cardiac arrest. And then the doctor on the other side says, well, is there any other type of cardiac arrest other than a full cardiac arrest, right? <laughs> yeah. That's almost like being half pregnant. Yeah. You, you can't be half pregnant. So the, the, the good thing of the story is I, I shocked her. She came back to life and she, and she was living whenever I left the hospital. But you know some of the, the, the crazy things about EMS is some of the simple things, right? I, yeah. I saved her. She, she was dead. Yeah. And a simple tact, a simple effect, yeah, brought her
0: back. Well, that's see, that's that's what's you know when alluring from the outside looking in is like I'm sure you have, uh, obviously both ends of the spectrum of the outcome, but
2: and the moments
0: where you know well, I literally intervened and either brought somebody back yeah. or prevented them from dying, you know, have you? I presume you probably had some people ever follow up with you, right, or like thank you, or I mean, or is oh, yes. there? It's okay. So they yeah, are they yes. aware of you? Uh, okay, so that's got to be rewarding in and of itself.
1: Well. It, it, it's rewarding because, you know, the, the times where you say to a patient, you're not going to – nothing's going to happen to you on my watch. Yeah. And that sounds cliche. I yeah. Mean, oh, yeah, every paramedic has said that. Well, it means something. Yeah. And, you know, to this day, it sort of like tears me up sometimes because I did that, and not just once, but hundreds of times. Yeah. And, you know, the, the problematic calls of kids and, yeah. you know, traumatic events, the blood and guts – that's probably one out of a thousand calls that I went to, but 99% of the other calls were just someone needed help in their time of need. Yeah. And that was me.
0: Well, I can tell just by listening to you talk, obviously the impact it's had on your life. And I appreciate you doing what, two and a half decades of two this work, decades, right? Yes.
1: It's a young man's game. I it's
0: it's a young man's game. So like at that point though, obviously you spent the bulk of your career and your you know, adult life as a paramedic. Then you decide what, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> or what, what happens? Well, like I mentioned, it's a young man's game, right? So- uh, Is it normal to age out of that uh, profession then or move on? Is there a transition out of it to do something else along the same path, I guess? Yes. You know, just management. You you graduate into the management of a
1: system. Uh, But one of the challenges with EMS, it's not very vertically inclined, right? So there's not too much advancement opportunities and you know you're you're lifting patients you're pulling patients you're doing other things with patients and it's it's taxing on your body Mm. so i was probably 40 years old at the time and i said i can't do this for another 10 years and um i i got into an, an ambulance association and that association did like group purchasing um for supplies and and we started a a multiple employer retirement plan. Okay. So that's what kind of was the graduation uh, outside of the street work and into something that I could do just for ambulance companies.
0: Did you like the administrative side as much as being on the front lines or was it good to maybe de-stress a little bit
1: <laughs> from that or? Well, truth be told, I did EMS part-time when I, did. I was doing this. Yes. Okay. Okay. You know, you, you, what is, what's the saying? You you can take the guy out of the country, but you can't get the, take the country out of the guy? Yeah. yeah. That, same thing. Uh, yeah. So I stayed in it and dabbled with it over the weekends. So that was my weekend. Game.
0: Couldn't get enough. And most people <laughs> some, you just watch football on the weekends. Here you are being a paramedic. But yes. I, I appreciate the fact that um, it's kind of in you, right? It's part of who you are. And- yeah. Uh, I guess the same as like a pro athlete that, you know, eventually when that their time has come and they leave their sport that they've dedicated 20 something years to, yep. it's like, can you really ever remove them from the sport? Exactly. It's, um, it's gotta be tough. So, so uh, of course we, we alluded to at the beginning of, of our discussion, we're going to talk about captives today, but I'm curious, you go from full-time <laughs> EMS to part-time EMS and doing the administration and the association, then what, where are the captives coming? That in? was the zag and the whole zig uh, and yeah, zag yeah, thing.
1: Yeah. And I, so yeah. The, the the multiple employer retirement plan that we were that we started, you know, the those employers said, "Phil, this multiple employer retirement plan works. It's it's saving costs on the administration. It's saving costs on the investments for the employees. It's working great, but we're getting killed by health insurance." Now this was 2008, mind you, okay. and I think if you if you go back to 2008.
0: I think a single rate was about $250 a month. <laughs> People always talk about this, and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, I wasn't. My gosh. I wasn't around for those days, unfortunately. So, so the, the
1: association that I was with said, hey, can you find a solution like the retirement plan but for insurance, health mm. insurance? Of course, I, I, I work for you guys, so of course I'm going to do that. So I went out to all of the major managed care networks, and I said, hey, we've got thousands of employees here. What if we all brought our business to you? And, and each of those carriers said, yeah, no thanks. Yeah. It, was a, it was a struggle. So that option wasn't available. Then we went down to the multiple welfare arrangement, mm-hmm. Miwa. Miwa, yeah. And, and that's poison. You don't want to touch that You know, right now. That's, that's not a good thing. So that was out. And then we came to this captive solution, and that's got interesting. Okay. So those association members said, yeah, let, let's look at this.
0: So who brought that idea to the table for you? you? You went through your investigation, but was there somebody that you reached out to initially mm-hmm. that said, hey, captives is what you should explore?
1: Yes. So we
0: we we reached
1: out to a couple consultants. You know, we vetted the field because there were a lot of, you know, not a lot, maybe three or four consultants that said, oh, this is probably the best option for you. So we we landed with one consultant and he said, you know, for this thing to take off, you need to brand it. You need to have an identity. Okay. What are you going to call yourself? So we had to look for a name. And that, and that was a process, Spencer, because, you know, were we going to be a catchy name? Is it going to be down to earth, real, you know, focused name? And I said, you know, I don't, I don't know what the name is. it's going to be, but when I hear it, I'll know it. Mm.
0: Right? And one of the consultants said,
1: how about just MedTrans.
0: For medical transit, medical transportation, or transportation, right? Okay, Medtrans. Okay, and it's just stuck. Yeah, and
1: that's that's when Medtrans. Well, that's like
0: naming your kid, right? Like you throw a bunch of names out, and eventually you're like, "That's it." And your wife is like, "Yep, I agree." And you come to so Medtrans was born out of that. So you guys started Medtrans as the mechanism in order to what build a captive for this association? Is that how that worked? Yes. So. Med, the,
1: the captive itself, and I'm jumping ahead of myself, but the captive was a group captive. Okay. Um, and at the time, the domicile that we wanted to work with, we were the first medical stop-loss captive in that domicile. Um, but uh, we filed for our license. We, we retained all of the service providers to do what we needed to do.
0: Um, and early April of 2010, we received our license. Okay. And so what did you have, or who was the person you were leaning on, leaning on to kind of explain this, right? Because obviously you didn't come to the table with the knowledge you have today. So mm-hmm. uh, was there a consultant or who was, who were you leaning on to educate you on this?
1: So it was, it was multi-pronged because, you know, the captive consulting was really specialized. So we retained a consultant for that. And then there was this self funded health plan. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I, I was Series 7 licensed and 66 in life accident and health license. But even then, I, I didn't have the sophistication on self funding because that's, that's a craft in itself, right? So I even brought in another guy to help us with the self funding portion of it. Okay. So it was multi pronged um, presenting to the members of this association.
0: Well, I mean, I think it speaks to the level of sophistication, which we're obviously going to dive deep into uh, in a moment. So anything before we move on to kind of get into the jargon, the med trans of its inception, kind of un- understand how this was born out of, or should we move on to the? Yeah, I, I think now's a good time anyway. But, uh, you know, the, the, the concept of
1: the group captive was still relatively new and unproven. Yep. And um, that was one of the challenges of, of this project of you, you you try to to sell a concept that hasn't been vetted out with the market yet, because this mm-hmm. is 2010. Not.
0: Do we know when the first captive uh, was born? I mean, you said 2010 was early, so do we know when the first one was? Yeah, I, I've seen multiple
1: 2008, 2009, 2010, but it was in that those...
0: Is there somebody out there claiming, you know, I was the first one to do it, or... <laughs>
1: I'm gonna leave that to them.
0: To okay. Okay. Fair that. enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Right. Like, what's a very competitive space to the captive space? Yes. I get. Um. And fair enough. So 2010 was still early stages, mm-hmm. right? And to you're you're putting together this captive yeah. uh, for this association. You know, talk to me about the barrier to entry to that, and I think that'll segue into our conversation about the jargon. Like you learning as you go. Tell me what that experience was like. Boy. Hey if there was ever
1: a time that I made myself look out to be a buffoon is when I tried to talk about captive insurance when I shouldn't have been Yeah. right. So I I had to rely upon the service providers to help me with that. And, and like I, like we've had conversations, Mm -hmm. You, you hear it so many times over and over again, you just start picking it up. Yeah. But, but the problem was the consultant that we retained when we would crisscross America saying, Hey, trust us, this project will work. He wasn't with us. It was my, you know, the guy that I started this with, um, he was with us and it, it
0: was a real challenge to convince people to trust us. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I can imagine, I'm just like, I'm just thinking about what it would be like to go out if I were tasked with the go explain captives with a very mm-hmm. minimal understanding of it, or, or at least experience, right. Exposure to it. Yes. Uh, that would give me heartburn. It was tough.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and most importantly, it was expensive. Yeah. Right. Because, uh, we got our license on April, in April of 2010, we put our first group in August, August 1st of 2010. So there were six months there of, I hope this works, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we're spending money on something that, at the end of the day, I didn't have any ownership of. MedTrans is owned by the members, okay, 100%. And it's governed by the members. So even today, as a service provider, I, I could get terminated if I don't do my job. Yeah, And that's the way it should be. The captive manager, who, who, who I am now, That's a service provider. And when you join a captive, that service provider is no different than the auditor. If you don't do your job and... You should have you should have consequences for that.
0: Well, I think we call that a proper alignment of incentives, right? That's right. Yeah. So so you're so you're traversing the country. This is obviously pre-Zoom in 2010. <laughs> so you're having to physically go out to all these locations. How many how many plane trips were you taking during that period of time? Was it I every had day? status very quickly? Yeah. Let's put it that way. Uh, fair enough. You yes. said United, right? Is yeah. your uh, yes. uh, plane of choice? So so let's get into the jargon because I think that's something we need to spend some time. The basics, right? Like we I always talk about on this podcast. Insurance is so full of jargon. None so more than I think stop loss, but I think captive rivals it to yes. a degree. Um, so can we talk some terms, right? Like- I'd love to. In the very beginning, I think, you know, I think captive manager probably is a place to start, and then I'll we'll go down through the laundry list. But I want to spend some time defining it. Even if this may be boring for some folks, at least we define the, the terminology we're going to use for the rest of the yep. conversation. So captive manager, what so, is that? And, and I'll even go one up. A, a captive. A captive, I mean, what, yeah. What wait, is let's a, start there. Let's start at what is a captive. What is yeah. a captive? Even better.
1: So fundamentally, a captive, by definition, is a private insurance company. Okay. So you, you have the commercial carriers, which are – uh, they can sell insurance policies to the to the public. Okay, okay, the captive can only sell or place an insurance policy to its owner or subscriber or member. Okay, okay? so private insurance company is what a captive is really called.
0: What is it? Does the captive term mean? I mean, like you say, it's private insurance, but what makes it captive? What is being captive at that point? The risk itself? Or did I jump ahead? No. Yeah, like, okay. I, so you're asking about the history of the, of the label. Yeah. Captive. I'm curious where that, that terminology came so from. So
1: the history of captive started out of a mining company. Ah. And the mining company was having struggles placing insurance. And the, the mine was a captive mine. Okay. Okay. So the word captive... Um, was born out of just the, the, the term of the mining company and, and how they mined the ore out of the earth. It's a captive mine. So that's
0: the origins of it? That's of the, the origins. Interesting. Oh, dude, I appreciate you. Not, I'm glad I asked and you're like, I have no idea, Spencer. Yeah, <laughs> that, that was good. So born out of a mining company, we talked about a captive is a private insurance company. Yes. Okay. So then that could lead us in, anything else we need to know nope. on that? Okay, so captive manager then, obviously people can guess what that is, but tell me what their actual blocking and tackling what yeah. they're doing as a captive manager. So a captive manager really sort of replaced.
1: Places the commercial carriers' operations of that insurance company. Because remember, the commercial stop loss carrier has to report financial results to the board or shareholders, mm-hmm. right? In, in a private insurance company, there's no there's no shareholders per se, it's the members. So the captive manager's role in a captive is really the go-between between the client. Member of the captive and the regulators, because every captive has what's called a domicile, okay. and a domicile is um, where the captive calls home. And within the United States, there's probably 40, 40 captive domiciles. Okay, so you can take your pick laundry list of captive domiciles. Some are better than others, right? It's, you know, if if your ambition is to go to Hawaii for a board meeting, then maybe you want to be domiciled in Hawaii. Okay, but Generally, they're all the same, but each has their own little twerk. So the captive manager does all the regulatory affairs for that captive to report to the captive domicile.
0: Okay. So all the regular, I mean, so is it. Safe to say, they're an administrator, kind of like a Very TPA uh, is the administrator of the medical plan. Okay, so a captive manager is helping manage the plan, um, choosing where it's domiciled. I like get pushing and pulling money. or Are they doing that? Is that the carrier? If there's a front, we'll get into fronting carrier. Tomorrow, yeah, yeah, but yeah. So,
1: but the captive manager is largely an an accounting mechanism. Okay. Okay.
0: Large so a lot of captive managers have accountants on staff or Very CPAs so. on staff? Okay. Yes. And is he, did they get lumped into as an SIC code an accounting firm or any any idea there? Well that's a good question. I, I don't know the answer to okay. that. Okay. I'll mm. get back to you. Good, I stumped you. Yes, I did it. <laughs> no. So uh, we often hear about group captives. I realize mm-hmm. that's uh, I think that's the more popular form of a captive. Yes. There's also single parent captives. So Define the uh, what is the contradiction or the opposition to those two terms
1: sure. there. So
0: MedTrans
1: started as a group captive. Okay. And the reason group captives evolved in the medical stop-loss side is because workers' comp group captives were around for years and decades before this, before medical stop-loss. And I think that the playbook from the group workers' comp captive just kind of fell into the laps of the medical stop loss arena. I see. Now, group medical stop, group workers' comp captives have to be fronted by a commercial carrier. Okay. So I'm jumping ahead of myself. So a group captive, by definition, is one tax ID number, one captive, okay. and then you have multiple employers or participants or members subscribe to the, to the captive. Okay.
0: Okay. And that can be homogeneous and heterogeneous right. as well. So uh, you want to explain those uh, so, terms yeah. as well?
1: So homogeneous is the same, like SIC code. Yeah. Okay. And then heterogeneous is any class. Now, workers' comp captives, you have to be generally homogenous um, because of that, the pricing of the, of the workers' comp captives. But with medical stop loss, you don't have to be because cancer doesn't know professions. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So it it's, doesn't have to be.
0: Do you know kind of uh, rough numbers? Uh, yeah, what percentage are heterogeneous versus homogenous? Like, is it mm. m- one more popular than the other in terms of group cells?
1: I, I, I don't know the okay. answer. I, from experience, generally, what, what I like to call verticals, some captives will have like verticals of just manufacturers. I see, yeah. Right? Because it's easier to start a group captive with a vertical because there's, there's greater fraternal effects in a homogenous captive right? Because a bricklayer wants to do business with another bricklayer Mm -hmm. on this space.
0: Well, and the risk profile of the employer is similar, right? So if you're looking into cost containment and controlling claims, like, hey, we know we experienced this. You likely experienced this type of consumption or claim as well. Okay. So that makes sense. So that's group captive. Yep. Now we've got single parent. Single parent. Tell me what a single parent captive is. So MedTrans changed its
1: structure in 2016 to what's called a single parent
0: captive.
2: Okay.
1: So by definition, a single parent means... Um, the captive has one owner, and that that owner is usually a business. It could be an individual, but it's usually a business and in our model, each employer gets their own single parent captive okay and there's there's several benefits to that which we find more attractive than the group model. one of those benefits and I don't want to get too granular too quick, but accounting is favorable okay so When an employer joins or is a a participant of a single parent captive, they are paying for stop loss premium from this pocket, Mm -hmm. their corporation, and that money is deposited into their own captive. I see. Okay. So the employer picks up an expense over here, picks up an asset over here that are equal. Okay. And through what's called consolidation, financial statement consolidation, you can consolidate the captive's financials and the... Corporations' financials.
2: I see. Okay,
1: you can't do that in a group captive because consolidation is only allowed if you own fifty-one percent of an entity.
0: Okay, so that makes sense. So the uh, tax advantages, I guess you could say, or or it's, is it's not necessarily tax. It's not necessarily tax. It's it's you're picking up an expense and you're picking up an
1: equal asset, and they
0: offset each other. Okay, I see. So, okay. So and obviously we'll dive deeper. In, and for those of the folks that are listening, of course, listen back if we go yes, too fast. Yes. Phil obviously is a wealth of knowledge, but I, this is not something anybody's going to understand in an hour. That's why I'm doing a second part to this as well. But I think it's deserving of spending this level mm-hmm. of time. And then we'll make sure people know how to get of a hold course. of you afterwards as well. Yes. Uh, so, so we, we did uh, mention uh, momentarily uh, fronting carrier, yep. fronting carrier and fees, fronting fees kind of go hand in hand. So what is a fronting carrier then? So a fronting carrier is a commercial stop-loss carrier, in
1: this example. So the, the captive enters into what's called a reinsurance agreement between the captive and the carrier. Okay. Okay? That reinsurance agreement defines how risk is ceded uh, and paid for. Okay. So the fronting carrier's job is to really do all of these stop-loss administration services. Okay. And so to some degree, you join a group captive, you're really outsourcing all of that stop-loss operation to a commercial carrier. Mm-hmm. In a direct rider model, we don't have a fronting carrier. We, A single-parent model, I should say. Mm-hmm. Our model is my office, the captive management firm, does all of the operations that the stop loss, the commercial stop loss carrier does.
0: Okay. Well, so you use the term direct rider, I wanna make sure, cause I know the, the term direct rider as a stop loss carrier who writes on their own paper and assumes mm-hmm. their own risk versus an MGU. So a direct rider in this space, tell me how that differs in terminology. Sure, so in
1: the group captive, the fronting carrier is issuing the client the stop loss policy.
0: So a Sun Life or an HCC or Berkeley or That's somebody right. like that. Okay.
1: So the client is effectively buying a commercial stop loss policy. Okay. And in our model, the direct writer, the client's captive, the single parent captive, is issuing the stop loss policy to the employer. Okay. So we don't have our medical stop loss policy is written for the benefit
0: of the client. I see. But there in in turn, the captive itself is absorbing the risk, right? or assuming the risk. That's right. okay. Instead of risk shifting over to the stop loss carrier to a degree. Am I saying that right appropriately or what did I mess up on? Finish your thought. Uh, that was the end of my thought. <laughs> so I didn't say it correctly. So Tell me what, where I was wrong there. No, no, no. You're, you're, had, had you finished your thought, yes, there, there is risk
1: shifting and risk distribution with our model. Okay. Now, in the group model, all of the risk shifting and sharing happens at the commercial carrier level. In our model, the single parent captive... Is sharing risk with other single parent captives in what's called a risk pool. Okay. Okay. The the risk pool shares risk at different levels, mm-hmm. different layers, of different, different layers. Yep. And our risk pool is what we like to call a like a FIFO inventory accounting method. First in, first, first out. Right. There you go, my okay. friend. So you're you're picking this stuff I up. I am, right?
0: man. I'm I'm learning as we go. So. When
1: the employer pays stop-loss premium, that cash goes into their captive. Okay. If they incur a stop-loss claim, that cash to pay that stop-loss claim comes out of that client's captive first, okay? So what that means is the client is very attentive on what comes out of their captive. Sure. Because it's no different than, hey, I've got this you know, Bank of America bank account for my corporation, and guess what? I've got a bank of account, Bank of America, bank account for my captive, too. I own that. Okay. So which pocket do I pay this stop loss claim from? So there's there's a whole lot more,
0: hey, is that claim legitimate?
1: Yeah. Is, is, is that the right claim for the right amount? So there's a lot of scrutiny that goes on.
0: Well, a lot of scrutiny. And I think we were talking, well, I don't know if we were at Sia talking about this, but um, where there's also the thought process... Do I always maybe want it paid, right? Do I want the stop loss if it's a not a, a huge catastrophic risk? Is it maybe something we choose not to? And I, we can explain the mechanics maybe further down the line. But whether or not you even want it to reimburse a claim, correct? And yeah, yeah, I understand that correctly. So we might have been drinking at the time no, a little bit, just a beer. But
1: so that you're asking a timely question. Yeah, yeah. Right. So if if a captive is is has incurred a claim that you're going to want to pay the claim, right? Because that's, that's one of the triggers that the IRS doesn't like, and okay. rightfully so. I mean, so if your captive has incurred a $100,000 claim from one of your employees, you want your captive to pay that claim. Because if you don't, then you're, you're sort of venturing into the area that the IRS doesn't like about
2: these types of okay. captives. Okay.
1: Okay. However, there's, if your policy is 12 months, most commercial stop-loss carriers say if you file a claim on October 1st, it's got to be really paid. You know, mm-hmm. we don't want to sit on a claim. Mm-hmm. We want to pay it. Mm-hmm. So there's timing incentives with our model that isn't necessarily there for a commercial carrier. Okay. Or so even the, a group captive.
0: The timing to pay sooner or? That's right. It is. Okay. Okay. That's right. But you said also there's a, perhaps a higher level of scrutiny because it's their own funds at the same time. That's right. right? Okay.
1: so. What, what we're getting into here is, and, and we're, again, jumping in front of ourselves a That's bit, okay, yeah. Um, cool. But our captives have an opportunity to elect a favorable tax election. Okay. Okay? And that tax election is what we like to say is a lever to lower your cost of health insurance. Okay. And, and, and we'll touch upon this in a minute, but, you know, my, my, our position is health insurance is crazy expensive right now. Mm-hmm if we can get a hold of these crazy expenses, we wouldn't need to leverage this favorable tax election. So we'll we'll save that for an entire other
0: session. Yeah. yeah. But uh, Well, that's a symptom, right? I mean, you're you're addressing a symptom symptom of the the root problem, which is the expense of healthcare is is astronomical. So getting us back on track, because I want to make sure we don't go too far in the weeds and at least define some of these terms we're going to use later. So we talked about fronting carrier, but what about the fronting fee? So the fronting fee is... It's a replacement of the underwriting profits
1: that the commercial carrier is now not going to. They're losing them. So underwriting profits, whether their margin or what they're building yeah, in for the, the profit. Yeah, yeah. So just think for a second. Very simple. If a commercial carrier collects a million dollars of premium, okay, and they have seven hundred thousand of claims, and you know, part of those claims is a hundred thousand of operational SG and A expenses. Mm-hmm. That means there's 800,000 of expenses, a million dollars of revenue in. That means there's 200,000 of profit. Mm-hmm. In the insurance world, that's called underwriting profit. So when a, commercial, when a stop-loss carrier fronts for a captive, all of those profits go back to the captive, Okay. right? That's an incentive to join a, a group captive or a captive. They're stripping profits from the carrier. Well, the carrier's not gonna do it for free Sure. because they have shareholders. <laughs> they're not going to like that.
0: Yeah, they're not going to lend their underwriting services yeah. for free.
1: So what, what happens is there's what's called a fronting fee. Okay. And that fronting fee is generally five, and I've seen it as high as 15% of gross premium. Okay. So if the captive members pay a million dollars to the fronting carrier, the fronting carrier takes that cut out immediately. Okay. 10%, let's say. So that fronting carrier generates 100000 of of money to do the operations that the captive is asking it to do. Okay. So the, the fronting fee is an important number that a consultant needs to look at because you know, that, that, that's to some degree making the captive somewhat you know, operationally more inefficient. Okay. And, and our argument, whenever we transition to a direct writer, the alignment of interest, Yep. right? And, and I always like to say, here, Spencer, here's my checkbook. I need a refrigerator. That refrigerator needs to be four, four, feet, four feet deep, three feet wide, six feet tall. If you have my checkbook, you may meet those specifications, but you may buy a television with a TV in it, <laughs> right? Yeah. For three times more than what I was willing to spend. So when stop-loss claims come in, the stop-loss carrier is really paying those claims with our money. Yeah. Right? I'm not suggesting that interests aren't aligned, but we want to make sure that that stop-loss claim is the right claim at the right amount because yeah. the, the money that's paying that stop-loss claim is coming out of the client's captive first. There's a level of scrutiny there that we didn't think— that the commercial carrier was aligned with us properly.
0: That's fair. That's fair. And so that fronting fee, is that an administrative fee rather than, because that's not at risk, right? They're taking the fronting fee as an administrator. So is there an element of additional profitability that's their exposure, uh, the carrier, if a commercial carrier is involved or a fronting carrier? You
1: can, you can have what's called a quota share arrangement. Okay. Lots of captives. When we first started, we were 90, 10 quota share, which meant our captive Medtran's, Retained ninety percent of the risk, and the carrier retained ten percent of the okay. risk. Hundred thousand dollar claim came in; we paid nine ninety thousand, the carrier paid ten. But there's hundred percent quota shares, meaning the captive is on the hook for a hundred percent. of 100%. Hundred percent.
0: Okay, so really, the, that point, the the commercial carrier is just effectively c- collecting an administrative uh, fee for their services. That's right. But there is no exposure; they're not really at risk from a risk transfer perspective.
1: Correct, and, okay. and fundamentally, you just have to ask yourself when someone else is signing my checks, yep. is it all there?
0: Okay, well, so I, I wanna make sure I understand this because I also don't wanna just be led to water, right? I like, mm-hmm. I wanna make sure to understand that. So if that carrier is involved, what is their real role outside of moving money around? I mean, is there are they a really even a stop-loss carrier at that point, like I traditionally think of a stop-loss carrier assuming the risk? Like, how does that differ?
1: Yeah, th- their day-to-day operations differ not- by no ways, okay. whether it's a captive or if they sold the policy on their own.
0: So just eligibility, reimbursement of claims, that's things it. like that. Okay. That's it. But there's no, the exposure then has shifted away from that. Because if I'm a direct writer of Stop Loss and Sun Life and you come to me for a commercial policy as a single employer, I say, hey, here's a million, it cost you a million dollars. I assume all of your risk, that's right? Right. Okay. So that's an interesting. And that's something that I, I'm kind of wrapping my head around as we go Questioning, like in that, you I think you're positioning as a way to question perhaps what the role of that yep. front-end carrier truly ultimately is. So let's table that for now, but I know we'll come back to it. This one I've never heard of before. Borderow report. Yes. I, uh, newsflash, Phil gave me some uh, terms to use because I don't know what I don't know. But Bordereau report. What it, What is that? So the the row, Did I say that right? Yes. Okay. Border, border row, okay.
1: That that's the ingredients to the secret sauce of a captive. Okay. And every consultant. Should be inquiring or looking at the borderware report. Okay, so the borderware report, in very simple terms, is the accounting of premiums that the carrier receives, and that accounting is being reported to the captive. Okay, because at the end of the day, the captive never touches any of their client's money until much later in, in the cycle of insurance because all of the premiums go to the carrier. Okay. All of the premiums, all the cash go to the carrier. So the, the carrier accounts for those premiums. They report the costs, the fronting fee costs. Mm-hmm. They report the excess premium costs. They report all of the expenses in the you know, garden variety of expenses of a group captive. And they is illustrated on the BorderWare report. Okay. So if you want to say, how much of my dollar and a group captive is actually used to pay claims it is expressed on the Rail report
0: okay and is this utilized by um, IRS for accounting purposes potential audit purposes is it proving where the dollars are going so what is the who's who's reviewing the borderway report
1: the user of the borderway report is the captive is the
0: captive That's okay it. So it is an internal document. An, it okay. goes
1: to the captive manager. I see. Okay.
0: Yeah. So why? What makes it so important, though, in your eyes, of why they, this should have uh, scrutiny or at least be reviewed, is is okay. just to know where the dollars are yeah. flowing. Okay. I mean, it, okay.
1: knowing is everything. Okay? Yep. Fundamentally, uh, an employer looks at a captive and says, "Hey, I, I want more control." That that is the common bond of 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 captive participants. I want more control. Okay. And. What, what I express tirelessly is when you join a captive, you're investing in that captive. It's not a two-year investment. It's not even a one. This is a five-year investment for the employer. And you join a captive, you don't even know what questions to ask until you're already in it. Because
0: <laughs> the, the yeah. jargon
1: is very different. Yeah, yeah. So, man, it is so important to ask the right questions before you sign on that dotted line.
0: Yeah, well, and to be fair, right, it's like it's also understanding what questions to ask um, right. as you go, which, I mean, that's where your consultant, that's where your captain manager comes in. It's like, yep. hey, we've been through this a hundred times before, full disclosure. These are the things you should consider. I don't think anybody, well, I would hope that anybody's trying to sell an employer on the notion of joining a captain. Captain doesn't appreciate kind of the risk that this uh, employer is undertaking, probably their inexperience and potential for exposure to things that they didn't anticipate because they're naive uh, mm-hmm. to a degree to come in. I think you should appreciate that this is somebody's business at the end of the day as well, right? And Very so you much. realize you're steering them in a direction that's going to have significant impact on their finances, hopefully that's to the right. good. Um, so a couple other terms, and then we'll get into, I think the, the, the final kind of half hour of the meat of it is funds withheld. I, I've heard that mm-hmm. thrown around before. What does funds withheld mean? I think this is the simple. This, this is, is the simple. simple. Okay, yes. good. Cool. Who's holding the cash? Who's holding the cash?
1: Yep. So uh, the carrier wants to hold the cash. Now, there's always a motivation for that, but there's also an operational ease. For yeah. us, it's an operational ease, too, because when claims come in, the carrier wants to pay it from one checkbook. Okay. okay? In, in our model, because we have our structures, like every employer has their own hotel room, And then Medtrans is the hotel, the bricks and mortar. So even though every employer is putting cash in their own hotel room, Medtrans still holds all the cash for the purposes of writing claims. Okay. Because I don't want to go to 25 different hotel rooms and say knock on the door, give me give me five thousand here, give me four thousand there. It just doesn't work. So we our reporting pays claims from one checkbook.
0: Okay. So that's the funds withheld portion. And the last but not least is probably my favorite terms that seems uh exclusive to the captive world is collateral.
1: Collateral. Co- what is
0: collateral?
1: I like to call it your entrance fee. Okay. The rights of passage. Okay. Your investment. So within the world of captives, it's a business. A captive is a business. It's a it's an entity. It needs to be capitalized. And in business world, that's called additional paid in capital. Okay. <laughs> Every business needs to have cash to operate, yeah. and in captives, it's also regulated about how much the captive needs to collect in collateral, and it's usually a function of the premium paid. Okay, so if your premium say a hundred thousand, you're you're going to pay some percentage of that hundred thousand. That's the calculation. Mm-hmm. But what's more important is, if I, if I'm in the risk pool, if I'm in the group captive and someone comes in without paying their entrance fee, are they really vetted? Are they really invested in the success? Because if someone buys into a captive as a transaction, they're not as invested as conceptually, emotionally as I am because my capital's in the captive, right? So this becomes a real important concept for an employer to say, if you're not all in, we don't want you.
0: Okay. And you said that collateral is required, right? Uh, yeah. And, okay. Uh,
1: I mean, someone's paying the collateral.
0: Okay. Sometimes- But you said by law, there are requirements of how much collateral or capital is, is there? The
1: regulators okay. will set the capitalization requirement. Okay. Now, the, the feasibility study that the captive hire outsources to an actuary will will have influence on that. And the captive domicile regulator will say, yeah, I agree with that. Okay. Right?
0: Okay. But it's set. They agree to Captain Beast. You these want categories. in, this is what
2: it is. Yeah. Right?
0: Okay. But it, I do appreciate the fact that there's skin in the game, literal skin in the game financially, right? But also it's like, hey – we've all agreed to this. We are all attempting to row in the same direction, right? right? We're all going to benefit or that's the idea. So, Hey, you want in, there's a membership fee. I'm not going to argue with that. And if it's required, then it is what it is. So that's also something the group needs to understand if they're exploring this as a solution. Exactly. Collateral requirement is going to be a kind of the barrier to entry. So I think that's a nice segue though. It's like, who is the right type of group who who is yes. a good profile of an employer size risk appetite like what what's a what's right for joining the medtrans cap
1: so i think the common bond for all captives inclusive of group captives is they want to participate in the risk management okay i always like to say is this is a participation sport and it's not a one or two year sport it's a five year investment okay so the the employer generally a type A <laughs> generally frustrated with I'm paying all this insurance premium and what I have no measuring stick to produce a return on investment because they're, they're in a world of, Hey, if my manufacturing out is my manufacturing system is, is not working right. I'm going to tweak it here and there, but you can't do that with health insurance effectively. So, so they join a captive because they want to have more control. They want to be the casino, right? They, 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 they see all the money go in the insurance company. Insurance companies are always making headline uh, profits. <laughs> sure. Okay? I, you could probably go to the, ask the Google now, and, and you could have all of that, have the, the earnings of all these fully yeah, insured. of course. Um, so they, they want a piece of that. Okay. So I think that's the common bond. So the, the type A control freak, what I always like to call. But then the size kind of goes from, you know, 50 employees on the small side. I mm-hmm. mean, MedTrans can write down to 20. Okay sometimes they're not the right group for many different reasons. Um, the group captive will say 50 to you know, 500. But the challenge with a group captive is if I'm a 500 life employer, I don't necessarily want to be in a risk pool with 50 life groups. Okay. Because you know, sometimes the, the saying, the bucket with the least rocks makes the most noise. You know, with small group, it doesn't take much to really blow a group through their 35000 dollars. Okay. So a larger group sometimes will get the impression that they're being diluted down in a group captive. Okay. With our model, every employer gets their own single parent captive. So the FIFO accounting methodology, an employer with five thousand lives likes our model. Okay. Okay. Because they get their own captive, and our risk sharing structure is more favorable to a larger, larger group. Okay. And that's the, that's the FIFO strategy that we like to deploy.
0: Okay. So yeah, cause I've historically heard that you could kind of age out, right. Or size out of yes. a captive at some point. And, and of course, you know, also that's my training in selling stop loss direct, you are partially self-funded. Yeah. Well, a partially self-funded group that's hundred lives. Sure. We'll write stop loss yes. for that. Um So you got to know though there is a historically, again, speaking size out seems more common than being too small. So what's the opposite of the spectrum? You said kind of 20, depending on the employer. Why is there a minimum requirement for a group size as well?
1: You know, it, what I always like to say is um, by by statute, I mean, in our captive domicile, our regulator says, nah, we want 20 lives. Okay. If you go below that, you're really kind of, your specific deductible is so low, it, it takes on the image of fully insured. Okay. Okay. So, um, but... Most some smaller employers just lack sophistication and the expertise in the risk financing world, and 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 that's no disrespect to the smaller employers, but you know, the the CEO has multiple roles in that Uh corporation, uh right? It's not always they don't have necessarily the bandwidth on the risk financing side.
0: Okay, well that makes sense. That makes sense, and so. you know, we were talking scrutiny. I think a minute ago, or you know, kind of some of the regulations and the visibility from an IRS perspective. What I'm hearing about that to a degree. So, what do I, what do I need to know? Or what does the audience need to know about things to be aware of from a regulation or scrutiny standpoint? Yeah. So
1: the the IRS has um, Section 831 of the Internal Revenue Code, and by default, insurance companies, inclusive of captives. Um, by default, go to what's called 831A. Okay. And, and, and an 831A means it's a C corporation and they're taxed on income. Okay. So uh, the current C corp tax rate is 21%. And that means if, I'm, if I bring in a million dollars, I have 800,000 of expenses, I've got 200,000 of profit. That profit is taxed at 21%. Okay. okay? So 831A is the default. Many years back, Congress enacted a new additional option for smaller captives. And the motivation for that is, hey, we want to encourage smaller employers to be more engaged in the art of self-funding. Because it's always more expensive, always better for an employer to pay their claims from their checkbook as compared to having an insurance company pay it for them. Because the second I have an insurance company pay my claim, my dollar claim really cost the insurance company $1.20 because of the inherent expenses of that corporation, mm-hmm. of that insurance company. So there's an election that's 831B, okay. and that's for micro-captives. And that 831B election has been abused. Okay. And it's been abused a lot, and the IRS is pushing back.
0: So two follow-ups. So what makes it a micro-captive then? When you say micro, is there a certain size that becomes a micro? Yes. Okay.
1: So in order to qualify for that election, you have to collect less than $2.3 million of policy okay. premium. Okay. That's just stop-loss premium in our example. Okay. Okay.
2: In total? In total. Okay.
0: Every okay. single year. Okay. So my, be micro, so that you can qualify for an A31B, but what type of abuses uh, then are we seeing, what the IRS doesn't like?
1: Yes. So- Think of an insurance company, a captive, like a stool, a footstool, okay, The surface of that footstool is the captive okay and it's and it has three legs to it, and the courts have come back and says and they and they say, if one of those legs isn't there, the whole insurance facility collapses, okay, okay and the abuse on the 831B side really stems from what's called enterprise risk policies. And enterprise risk policies, um, they're, they're essentially policies that loss of key supplier, okay. loss of key employee. So argument, uh, arguably, those are business risks. If you lose your CFO is that really a fortuitous risk, right? Did you have control of that? Maybe, maybe not. So in the enterprise risk space, the employer was making the claims against their captive. Okay, That's a very vital discussion here, and it's a differentiator. So if I'm the employer, I'm buying, let's say, $100,000 of loss of key supplier insurance, and I'm putting that money into my captive. I'm taking the deduction of that 100000 and putting it into my captive. And that money sits there. Okay. If I have a claim against one of my policies, I could file a claim against my captive. Well, what came into question is the 831B trying to make it more advantageous for smaller businesses. The 831B says the revenue on my micro captive is not taxed on income. Okay. So the, the challenge here, the IRS says, no, wait a minute, Spencer. You could have filed a supply chain disruption claim, but you chose not to. Mm-hmm. And the reason you chose not to, because you're trying to preserve that captive which is tax advanced mm-hmm. advantaged. Okay. So in in our model, each single parent captive can elect 831B if they want to. Okay. It's their discretion. And We are the watchdogs of that because we apply the three-legged test. The policies are fortuitous, meaning it's the employees driving the claim. Okay. It's not the employer. Spencer, you broke your leg. You're a $60,000 claim. You're a $10,000 stop loss claimant. Mm -hmm. Not the employer. Okay. That's the first thing. So it's not anywhere close to a business risk. It's fortuitous. Then there's the other leg of policy pricing. Now in our model there's a, there's a incentive to say boy let me take a million dollars of profits from my corporation and buy a million dollars worth say, I, of I
0: think I already knew where you're going with this right yes. so yeah overpricing
1: overpricing policies yeah. uh, we don't do that. We have an outside actuary that prices all of our plans, all of our stop loss policies and that's what's called an arms length transaction. Okay. So our policy pricing comes from someone who has not vested in the interest of the captive. So and, and, and it's funny because policy pricing is really a cultural indicator from us because sometimes an employer will say, Phil, I, I like that $100,000 policy. I love it at 90000 mm-hmm. Can you get the $90,000? And that's where I kind of say it. Uh, Spencer, I'm not sure you're ready for this, man. Yeah because if I underprice you by 10,000, guess what? I'm now shifting risk to all of the risk pool participants mm-hmm. and they would fire me on that if I did that. So yeah. I'm never gonna do that. So policy pricing. The third leg are claims. Stop loss are our claims. You can't get away from that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, you may go two or three years with ever with never filing a stop loss claim, but you will, what I always like to say, Two or three years out of every five to seven are bad years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And that holds true with us. So even if you have no claims, you're still paying someone else's claims within our risk pool to some degree. So our three-legged stool test, it's very solid, right? Because... We we don't want to run we don't want to run afoul of of that.
0: Well, and that's what really like you know I kind of brought that question up, and is, I think it's a common perhaps objection or um, somebody trying to pick apart the notion of a captive is some of the less uh, scrupulous things that are done in this space taints yes. the notion of a captive, right? And I, I completely appreciate that. So just kind of understanding, right? You are still towing a line. You talked about t- type A employers. You're still towing a line of what you can i don't say get away with but what within the constraints of the law are appropriate or not and sometimes i realize there could be a gray area in that regard and which is somebody leans on you to steer them clear of that too much gray yep yeah is that safe to say okay it it is safe to say because at the end of the day the 831 b election that
1: those captives within our risk pool not all of them elected b some of them elected a okay but of those that are in the risk pool that elected B they're not taxed on their profit. So every business makes a buying decision based on what? What's in it for my business? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Spencer, I love you, but I don't really care about your business. Fair enough. In a group captive, there's no me, there's us. Okay. And that was a distinction and a motivation that changed our structure because our members said, man, I am doing everything possible to, to mitigate my severity risk. OK, but this guy down the road, he's not doing it as good mm-hmm. or he doesn't really care. He's just writing the checks and saying, hey, I'm in a captive. I get to go to Hawaii for my board meetings. <laughs> I mean, it's the truth. It's it,
0: enough, that's it, enough of a job yeah. probably for some people.
1: So it, the motivation has to be self-servant. Mm-hmm. So if I'm the employer and there's 200000 of stop loss premium in my captive, I am very aware of every claim that is paid out of my captive. I want to make sure that that $10,000 stop loss claim is a legitimate claim. Right? Yeah. Because it's my money. And if I can intervene and let's say I can save $10,000 of stop loss claim payment, well, I'm not taxed on that income. And that's a lever. That's an operational lever of efficiency because a group captive collects more than $2.3 million. So- if a group captive say has 100 million of premium and there's 80 million of expenses and claims 20 million dollars of profit they're paying the the IRS 4 million dollars of that mm-hmm. so that 4 million we can keep in
0: our risk pool for efficiency for efficiency and i uh, uh suppose future expenses right or or correct c- it carries forward carries forward right right yeah so over the years you can put that that profit to work
1: to lower your stop-loss rates, to offset your premiums. At the end of the day, you're benefiting the employees because the cost of care, cost of insurance is less.
0: Makes sense. Okay, I'm coming around, Phil. I'm, I'm coming around. So let's let's kind of get get. To, I think we have maybe ten more minutes left. Uh, I'm gonna make sure conscientious of the time in the studio okay. here as well. But this has been fascinating. Uh, just yeah. so you know, um, transparency, right? It sounds like there's a lot of alignment and focus on transparency. Really, what well, even that Bordero report, I suppose, yep. is is a radical notion of transparency. So talk to me how that applies in this space, making the expenses more transparent, or transparent, the claims payments more transparent. Is, that, is it safe to say transparency is one of those pillars um, of a captive? That,
1: that is entirely our mission. Okay. MedTrans is 100% owned by the members. So the, the employer owns their own hotel room, and then that hotel room has a share of the risk pool, which is the hotel. Okay. So I'm a service provider. And what I always like to say is, if I don't do my job, I can be fired. So our our members democratically elect the board of directors. Okay. We have various committees, like an underwriting committee, a finance committee, an executive committee. Those are all levels of checks and balances. Um, but every dollar is accounted for. Mm-hmm. And it's that transparency that we subscribe to that. That's the root of why an employer does this with us. Well,
0: they, I presume the employer buys into the transparency for themselves as well, right? Like there's a, that you talked about a collateral as a barrier to entry, but mm-hmm. I assume you can't just be like, oh no, I'm not going to share with the group. What what level do you have to stop at though with HIPAA um, where you cannot share certain information? Is there, I mean, like so-and-so uh, employer had a claim, mm-hmm. but you don't know it was Debbie with, cancer and you know, the not. outcome. Okay. Yeah. So, so HIPAA still applies. Right. But I presume, and I think one of the, the notions that I understand about a captive is kind of a sharing of best in practices and Hey, you're doing this. Well, how's that? Tell me about that. How's that work? Maybe I can do that. Like, is there a lot of that proactive oh, sharing man. of it's a breeding ground of that. Okay.
1: So MedTrans has an annual meeting, um, at the begin at the end of the first quarter,
2: that's the Savannah one, Savannah. Right? Yes. Yes.
1: Um, so it, the the reason for that meeting is collaboration mm-hmm. because good ideas spread like wildfire fire in our program. And, and what I always like to say is, I don't know if I have the best PBM in place today. I think I do. But if, if a new consultant brings in a new option, guess what? That's going to, that's going to go to everybody because our members talk. Yeah. Right. So, it's important the collaboration, the fraternal feel is very important.
0: That's what it sounds like. That's what I kinda of always you got this outsider's perspective of is like you know, you talked about the annual conferences or biannual, however they may be. But it's kinda of interesting, especially even with folks that are kind of in the homogenous type captive where they potentially are competitors to a degree, yes. right? But still sharing best practices about how to run your operation or how to save money on claims. I I can appreciate that, right? You can yes. still compete head to head on what product or service you sell, but they're helping each other manage yep. the claims because I think everybody and that captive, of course, benefits from that. That's different. That's refreshing to kind um, of hear of competitors perhaps even sharing with one another um, yes. and helping one another, which is kind of interesting.
1: Because they're in the same risk pool. Yeah. It, if if Joe over there needs help on controlling some of their severity costs, then Sally wants to help them because – Joe's gonna be di- diluting Sally's profits potentially.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's almost like, hey, you're, you're, you're affecting me. So get on the, get on the, exactly get right. on the train, man. So, so um, yeah, kind of future of this, I, I, you know, generally I ask folks like what the future of the industry, but I'd rather hear your perspective kind of the future of the captive industry mm-hmm. at large. You said you, you guys have shifted, right? You shifted towards the single parent style of captive. What's, what's kind of the next iteration of captives? Do you see something on the horizon that changes your space at all?
2: Oh, boy. Uh,
1: I, by and large, the space is growing fast. Okay. And, and that's evident by the number of group captives that are coming into the market, mm-hmm. the amount of private equity that's coming into the market. Mm-hmm. So we think that this this is primed for growth. And, you know, we, we had this conversation earlier. Is, is there a maximum size, right? And and our model, not really, because our hotel room... I, I jokingly say each floor could be like its own vertical okay. oxymoron. Yeah, but you know the the manufacturers all have one floor of our program. The lawyers and professional services have another floor. Those could be like risk pools. Okay. So our motto is scalable, and that was by design because sure. we we want our members to be accountable for their own risks and. We want to give them the tools for that
0: one well, one of the things we talked about over lunch that I think is a shift that you you told me that I was unaware of is the the domiciling offshore versus onshoring it back so you're saying it's less prevalent nowadays to offshore your domicile correct yes uh, there was a the reason for that yeah
1: there's there's really no reason to go offshore um, there once was a reason um, but with the Trump tax you know Event in 2017, I think. Yeah, it was. what was that
0: to to encourage kind of was it a repatriation of funds yes. or whatever? I forgot the terminology that was used to get people to take their cash that's sitting over here and bring it back to the states because of they were worried about corporate taxes yes. or something. Okay, yeah, I remember
1: yes. that. And and if your captive is is already doing business offshore, it's a very costly event to bring that onshore. Okay, and it, offshore is not bad. It's still a very reasonable thing to do. It's just there's the incentive is is no longer there.
0: Okay, unless you like trips to the Cayman Islands, correct? Yeah, which who doesn't like a trip to the Caymans? Yeah. Hey. Yes. <laughs> hey, every year. Yeah. Well, right. Every, every year. year. So kind of last but not least, man, I want to wrap it up. You know, we we went deep in the jargon, and this is by design. This is a technical product that's not mm-hmm. for ever. Technical solution, I should say, that's not for everybody. Um, but you know, summarize if you will for the audience, what, what do we need to leave them with? Like what are things to consider? Of course we want to be able to have them reach out to you and talk about that at the very end, but what do you want to leave? Just people that you want to emphasize of importance. Yeah.
1: It, it, I think our history of being a group captive fronted by a carrier, the lessons learned from that got us to where we are today. Okay. And, and I'm a professor, professor of efficiency and transparency. I want to leverage everything that I possibly can for the benefit of the client. Mm-hmm. And the group captive model and our direct writer model share the common bond of employers that just want to have more control. Mm-hmm. They want to take an ownership stake into a captive that will pay dividends at some point in the future. Okay. Those dividends are the rewards for effectively participating in your second or third highest cost of your business. Mm-hmm. You have to get involved. And if you're not involved, you're probably not welcome.
0: Yeah, and it's just, I mean, people that want control, right? Yes. People want a willingness to participate. And, and uh, you know the skin in the game element, I think is something that's really unique that I appreciate about yeah. this as well. So where should folks, or how should folks get a hold of you if they have more interest in talking about captives? Well,
1: uh, I can be reached on my cell phone, my office phone. Uh, our website is completecaptive.com. OK. Um, so Complete Captive Management Services is the captive management firm. OK. We've got a LinkedIn page. We've got you know our website, completecaptive.com. MedTrans Insurance is the name of the captive. OK. Um, so you can go to LinkedIn, look up MedTrans. You can go to medtransltd.com.
2: OK.
0: Um, and then reach out. So Phil, I I know we didn't say it up front. I'll obviously have your name across the the beginning, but so can you spell Haloka for the audience as
1: well? Yes. It's H O L
0: O W K A. You got to break it up into three syllables and Uh, Awesome, man. Well, so, Phil, it's been a pleasure, man. I really appreciate you making time for this on your schedule. It's very good to see you. We bumped into each other at SIA, which was a nice surprise as well. Um, But uh, thank you for this. Uh, This is something that I think is going to be helpful for me. Mm -hmm. I I Hopefully it's helpful for the audience. I think this is a space that deserves some time to flesh out the conversation and does not necessarily fit in a 30 or 90 second soundbite. Um, which might make it a little difficult to come up with a clip for this, but I think that's okay. Right. If you're like you said, if you're buying into this idea, it's a five-year play, there's going to be a lot of education around it. It's not a reaction to a bad renewal necessarily. There's a lot more to it than that. And so you need somebody you can trust and explain it to you. We
1: want to give our clients the tolls to invest in themselves. And, and and I will Boom. and, and I, I will give you as many
0: kudos as possible because you're doing good work in this space. Thanks man. Well, you are as well. So I appreciate you, Phil. Yes. maybe you will, a couple months down the line we'll have you back for a round two. be delighted. All right. Thank See you. you, man.